Amen. While you're being seated, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 12, our scripture reading this morning. We're going to take our text at the end of the chapter, or close to the end of the chapter. We're going to start at verse 14, and our focal point is 14 through 21. But today we're going to kind of look at verse 14, that first phrase or that first verse, and then we're going to go down and spend a little bit of time in verse 20 and 21. We're going to mix it up a little bit because of the statement that is made in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. How's that work? Is it really possible for us to love our enemies? Is it really possible for us to bless those who persecute us? What is our natural tendency? Read the next phrase. Bless and do not curse them. You ever been cut off in traffic? Somebody ever take your parking place? Somebody ever break into your house or your car and take what was there? Have you ever been mugged? Have you ever been the victim of a crime? Has anybody sabotaged you at work, lied about you to your boss, sought to ruin your reputation, sought to get ahead of you in some way? What about at school? Somebody laid traps for you? Has there been someone with that has approached you or had some sort of relationship with you where they were intending to do harm, which is the phrase persecute, those who plan and pursue with the intent of doing harm. And yet God says, through the Apostle Paul, based on all that has gone before, we are to bless them. By the way, real quick, I want to throw this out there. What does it mean to bless someone? It does not mean... As I heard one guy say, bless them out. (laughs) That has a completely different meaning. All right. But to bless someone, by the way, you and I, we can speak well of someone or we can speak favor into someone's life to some extent. But really for us, we don't have any special power to uh, to express or to bestow upon someone blessing. What do we do? How do we bless someone? We pray for them that will work good in their life what is cursing it's not cussing out cursing is praying that God will damage that God will hurt that God will harm that God will exact his retribution against them and so we begin with this phrase bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them now I'm going to jump down to verse 19 and kind of pick up in verse 19 Because our tendency is vengeance. Our tendency is getting even. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so this text says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So to the contrary, rather than getting your own vengeance, if your enemy, the one who is seeking to do you harm or has done you harm, is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? And here's the point of the whole passage. We're going to take time to look at these things in a little bit more detail. But here's the point of the whole passage. If you just, this is what you need to take home. Do not be overcome by evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. I believe that this text speaks to every one of us. I believe that you're continuing to conform us to the image of your son, that you're continuing to bring out the life of Christ that you've placed within us at salvation. I believe you make us a distinct people, a peculiar people, a holy people, people who respond to circumstances and situations differently than those who don't know you. And you do that to bring glory to yourself. You do that for our own peace and our good as you work good in us and develop faith and trust in us. You do that as a, as a witness to the world around us who sees us behaving differently and responding differently as a testimony of your power that works within us. And so, Father, teach us these lessons. Teach them well. Help us to receive them. Help us to remember what it means to, in times past, have been your enemy and how you dealt with us, that we might emulate that, that we might allow you to be redemptive in us and through us. It is in your name I pray these things. Amen. When someone harms you, when someone hurts you, there are two kind of extreme responses that we go to. One of them is kind of almost like a holier-than-thou attitude, which says, turn the other cheek. As a matter of fact, you remember what Jesus said? Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Really? Yes, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, robs. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, we need to understand the context of that teaching, but isn't that abundantly clear? Love your enemies. He goes on in this passage to say, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? What thanks have you? Anybody, everybody loves people that love them. It's loving your enemies that give us distinction. And so when somebody harms us, sometimes people respond to an extreme where they just say, well, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. We'll just let it go. It's, it's, just, it's just not that big of a deal, and I'm just supposed to turn the other cheek, and we become uh, really apathetic. We turn a blind eye to the evil, pretending it never happened, and we've missed completely the reality that God is a just God and loves justice and hates evil. But the other extreme also happens, and those are the what I like to call us Old Testament guys. We like the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth stuff, don't we? I mean, this is, this is, somebody has harmed me, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to make sure it never happens again. And if that means harming them in return, then we'll harm them in return. I had a friend one time who was exacting vengeance upon someone who had harmed him. And I'm not going to give you the circumstances of that situation. But being a good pastor, I said, hey, listen, don't take your own vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And he said, I just want to do the Lord's work. <laughs> I just want God to use me. Now, I want you to understand, remember, what is the key phrase in here? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What happens to our own hearts when we don't love those 
who pursue harm to us. So for us to understand how this passage clarifies our response, and we're focusing today not on what God teaches us in suffering. We've talked about that in the past. We will talk about it again. God strengthens our faith. He teaches us endurance. He teaches us his reliability and dependency, how we can walk fully dependent upon him. He teaches us lessons and disciplines us and corrects us. But we're not going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about simply how we respond when we are wronged, how we respond when someone seeks to harm us, to our enemies. So for us to understand this, we have to remember a few things. Number one, what Stephen read at the beginning of our passage, we've experienced the mercies of God. Amen? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Sacrifice and service. We no longer live to ourselves. We're holy, which is set apart. We just sang about that. We're holy. We're set apart to God. We now live not to please ourselves, but to please Him and for His glory. We are being not conformed to the world, but transformed into the image of His Son. We are rolling up our sleeves and serving Him by doing those things that please Him. And we reflect His character as He transforms us into the image of His Son. So we need to be reminded of a few things about God. And let me just throw these out there really quick. God hates evil. Do you believe that? God hates evil. There are so many places we could go in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you have a concordance, I would encourage you to look some of this up. But there are some hard passages that we need to grasp and understand. I was going to take you to Psalm chapter 5, but we'll just look at one verse in Psalm chapter 11 where it says, The Lord tests the righteousness, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And there are so many passages we could look at. We may come back and look at some of those I don't know. We'll see how time goes in the message this morning. But if you look, just Zephaniah chapter 3, write that passage down. You might have some fun finding it. It's uh, fourth the last book in the Old Testament. But it's how God is brokenhearted and angry over the sin in, 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 that is in Israel and that is in the world and how he promises to come and redeem people and bring people to repentance and restore a perfect future where there is no evil. But in the meantime, he will always judge the impenitent and he will always judge the evil ultimately and currently. God hates evil. Second phrase, very simple, God is just, J-U-S-T, God is just. God's just what? He's just right. He's just righteous. He does what is just all the time. Psalm 98 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. What that means quite simply is that God judges sin, all sin. True? God judges sin. God rewards the righteous. God judges sin. And I'm so grateful after we recognize that God hates evil and that God is just, that we also know that God is merciful. Aren't you glad of that? The Bible talks about us being enemies of God, ungodly, when Christ came to die for us. And because of his mercy, we can be saved. There are so many passages that speak of the, 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 the uh, everlasting loving kindness of God, that speak of the mercy that he pours out upon us. I love Ephesians 2, God who is rich in mercy. When Paul in Ephesians has already talked about how we were children of wrath, that we were uh, ungodly, that we were spiritually dead, God who is rich in mercy. Out of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And we come to grace. For by grace you have been saved. So we have experienced his mercy. We're set apart to him. And we live to please him as our act of worship. And this includes how we respond to those who intentionally harm us, who hurt us, our enemies. And the first point I want us to make, because, again, we're steadfast servants. You remember that whole series, January, steadfast servants, is we serve God as steadfast servants even in and maybe especially in how we respond to evil, even in and especially in how we respond to evil. Now, I want you to follow along. This is important. If God hates evil and God is just and God is merciful, what happens to those of us who are evil? They're only one of two things. We experience the mercy of God in repentance and faith and we're forgiven and we are made new and Christ's righteousness is given to us, right? Repentance. Or we are, the word is impenitent. We are, I love the Bible words, stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious. I love them because they're graphic, not what they communicate. But we are hard-hearted against God. Uh, we are, we are uh, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And what happens to the impenitent? What happens to those who are settled in their sin and never come to the point of experiencing the mercy of God? Judgment. Judgment now, the wrath of God, but also judgment to come. You guys know that there was no sin in Genesis 1 and 2. You know that there's no sin in Revelation 21 and 22. In the meantime, there is evil and there is wickedness in the world. And it does grieve God. And God is providential and he is sovereign and he does work. And he is active now. The wrath of God is being poured out, Romans chapter 1, against sin. But there is coming a day when his wrath against sin will be poured out in red hot judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3. It hasn't come yet because God doesn't want anyone to perish. But there is a day coming when God's judgment will be consummated. Now, we need to understand that because we need to understand a phrase down here. If God hates evil, if he's just, if he's merciful, there, and there is a coming judgment against all sin, then those who harm us and hurt us will either come to the point of repentance, will either be forgiven redeemed and restored or they will face his coming judgment which is a pretty good transition to what is probably the most confusing phrase in our text today and I love it I, today I want us to explore what that simple phrase means he says in verse 19 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God remember that for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord verse 20 to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, and here's the phrase, you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? You ever had anybody you wanted to heap burning coals on their head? We take it very literally, and I will tell you that I've done a lot of study to seek to understand, all right, is there a historical context here I'm missing? What exactly is, is, is in this phrase 
I found three basic interpretations or applications of this text. I'm going to give them all to you, and then I'm going to tell you the right one. No, I'm kidding. I want to give them all to you, and I want us to explore what they are. The first, I'm going to use John's phrase, burning shame. Burning shame. The idea here is that someone has done evil to you. They've harmed you. They've hurt you. And what do you do? You're nice to them. You are kind to them. You don't seek your own vengeance. You display love and grace. You pray for their good. Now, when I say pray for their good, I don't mean pray that they'll have a nice day, that their car won't break down, that their acne clears up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about praying that God will do his ultimate good by bringing them and granting to and granting them repentance and cleansing and making their way right. We want the evil to stop. God wants the evil to stop. Amen? So we're praying for their repentance. And one translation of burning coals on their head is the burning shame. They're evil against you. You're good to them. They feel shame at their action. Augustine was a fan of that application in this text. And is there a biblical example of that? I believe there is. You remember the story of... David, before he became king, and King Saul was mad and wanted to kill David. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we're not going to look this text up. I just want to tell you the story. You can look it up. Make a note and look it up. Saul, I said, did I say Samuel? Uh, Saul, King Saul, is out to kill David. And he's got his cohort, his unit of soldiers, and they are searching for David in the hill country. David and his small group of men are hiding from him. David's innocent. Saul's angry. He's out to kill him. Saul is persecuting, pursuing with intent to do harm. Well, the scripture a little bit graphically says King Saul had to relieve himself, and so he went into a cave to use the bathroom. Porta John of the day. David, meanwhile, and his men had concealed themselves deeper in the cave well while king saul was about his business some of his men came up to david and said here's your chance go kill him now and david refused to raise his hand against god's anointed but what he did do was he snuck up to him and he cut off a corner of his robe of his clothes and when king saul went back out and joined his men david came out and he waved the cloth, and he said, King Saul, you are seeking to harm me, and I am innocent. And God gave you into my hand. I could have taken your life just now, but my, by my actions, my kindness to you, by my actions, I pray that you will reassess, that you'll recognize that I am not your enemy. And Saul is put to shame. As a matter of fact, in that text, he says, I am shamed. I am embarrassed. That you have treated me with such righteousness and I have treated you with such unrighteousness. So burning shame is a decent understanding of what it means to heap burning coals on their head. Are you with me there? Now we hope that shame leads to repentance. By the way, spoiler alert, it didn't in King Saul's case. He felt shame for a little while and then all of a sudden his anger and animosity amped up. But... Another interpretation that I've seen in some of the uh, commentaries that I've studied, basically a guy named Pritchard found an, an Egyptian tradition that uh, uh, said that there was a tradition in old Egypt back in the day 
where there was a ritual that was in place. And when someone had done someone wrong, for them to be forgiven, there was a, a ritual where they would actually take a, a bowl of coals and they would have to walk a certain area before certain people to demonstrate their own anguish over their sin and their, contri- their contrition, their repentance, their forgiveness. I'm going to call that the burning ritual. Here's my problem with that. The phrase burning coals on their head, heat burning coals on their head, is a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 25. Several hundred years after whatever Egyptian ritual would have been found. I I don't think that Israel, King Solomon, was quoting from an Egyptian ritual. However, we would hope that shame, that guilt, would lead someone to repentance. Also, scripturally, coals don't represent repentance. Ashes do. It's a different thing. Now, here's what Chrysostom said and other theologians and and several of the commentaries that I read. I told you about burning shame and the burning ritual. There's also burning judgment. Heap burning coals on their head speaks to the judgment that they will face at the hands of a righteous God if they remain unrepentant. They do evil to you. You do good to them. They, inevitably, if they don't come to repentance, will face judgment for the evil that they do. Does that make sense? All right, this is foundational because we're talking about how do I respond to someone who has harmed me? How do I, as a Christian, genuinely love, bless, and not curse those who pursue us to do evil from us. And that's the second point. We must learn both justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. As a believer, we must learn both justice and and mercy. When someone does evil to you, they steal from you, or they hit you with a car, or maybe a hit and run, or they lie about you to your boss, or they sabotage a project you're invested in, or they seek to harm you or tear you down, they... they, um, speak maliciously against you for whatever reason our desires don't want to get even we want the bad guy to pay for what he did it's what most of our movies are about right the underdog the guy who was harmed against he all comes back and 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 gets his vengeance we want to see vengeance served and yet we're told in this passage never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God there's the justice there's the punishment for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord. So how do we endure the injustice? The first thing is we simply trust that God is going to mete out justice. That God, we are in God's hand. He'll deal with them. We'll be okay. Beyond that, we can even be nice here and do good for them. Even be sorry for the judgment they face. Have you ever heard of Matthew Henry? Anybody here? Y'all know who Matthew Henry is? All right. He was a 18th century theologian who wrote a commentary by the way it's still in vogue today it's actually a great devotional commentary almost to the whole bible it was completed but he's a great man and in one of his journals he wrote this he had been robbed someone had broken to his house and taken what little possessions that he had and he and his wife were suffering from being robbed and yet in his devotion that day in his journal he wrote i thank you god that i was robbed and was not the robber. 
pretty good perspective. I would rather be the one being robbed than being the one that has a heart willing to rob and being the one facing your justice as a thief and as a robber. It's important that we recognize that God hates sin and that we can trust Him to deliver. There is anticipation of judgment, and yet there is the prayer that God will bring them to repentance. So how do we do this? How do we bless those who persecute us. First of all, we trust God with the outcome. We ourselves belong to God. We're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. We pray for God to bring them to the point of repentance. All right, We're balancing now justice and mercy. We're praying that God will both execute justice and that he will grant mercy by bringing them to repentance. And when we do that, we are participating in God's plan to bring sinners to the point, sinners to the point of forgiveness. Some will be saved. Some will be saved. Some will be made new. And we get to be a part of that. And yet, that does not mean that we ignore justice. It means that we let God deal with justice. Can I? We got time. You guys, can we take a little journey back to Exodus 23? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 23. All right, we're going to, and Sharon, if you'll find these passages, just start with verse 1. And, and we'll go till I deem it's enough. How about that? Exodus chapter 23, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, look on the screen, and I want you to see something that I think is just fascinating in this text. What is happening in the book of Exodus? God is giving law to the children of Israel. He's telling them how to live as a nation, a theocracy, a nation under his people. And he's telling them about justice. And here's what he says. Let's start in verse 1. And this is really three paragraphs. We're going to read three paragraphs. No one, ooh, oh, I better get to Exodus. I don't want to read the Deuteronomy 23. Y'all can look that up later. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Exodus 23, you shall not spread a false report. So don't lie, all right? Don't accuse someone falsely. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We're talking about court. We're talking about justice. We're talking about doing what is righteous. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Listen, you can't be. You can't be a part of a mob to act unjustly, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You don't favor the rich in your lawsuit. You don't favor the poor in your lawsuit. You're interested in what is right and just and fair. We're good there, right? But what does he say in the next paragraph? If you meet your enemy's ox, you should cut him up and have steak. No. What does he say? Are his donkey going astray? You shall bring it back. To him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. Don't leave him on his own. Go to his aid. If someone runs into you in the parking lot and then their car breaks down, go help the car. Go work on the car. Help the car get running as you're calling the police to fill out our police report. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, be just, but be kind. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. And he goes on in verse 6, the next paragraph. You shall not perverse the, 
pervert the justice due to the, your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And he goes on talking about what it means to be just. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He's saying that God is just and we're to act justly. However, we're to pray that God will bless them. We're to be kind to them. If they are hungry, we feed them. If they are thirsty, we give them something to drink, hoping, praying that our kindness will mimic, will be a display of God's kindness, which he intends to bring people to repentance. You remember that in Romans chapter 2, right? In Romans chapter 2, where he turns his attention from the pagan Gentile to the religious Jew, and he says they're storing up wrath for themselves. He reminds them that God has done good to them, and they're presuming on the goodness of God. God, you've been good to us. We must be okay. And he says, no, it is the goodness of God that he intends to bring you to repentance. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, even if he's harmed you, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Don't let the sin go. We don't let injustice go, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? Have you ever done something wrong and then felt guilty and contrition about it? Wish you hadn't done it? Lord, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Father, I hate I did that. I don't want to do this. This doesn't give you glory. And I know that there, is a, there, there are consequences to sin. Help me stop. Change this. Change me in this way. And that's what we want. We are not soft on sin. We don't condone sin. We don't neglect justice. But you can love your enemy while displaying the justice of God. It is a mistake, by the way, I'm going to tell you, we do this too much in our culture, I think. It is a mistake for us to look at a thief and say, Oh, well, they're extenuating circumstances. He or she wasn't raised right. They've had a hard life. We have, a, we, have a, we have what is sometimes a very appalling tendency to view perpetrators as victims. And it doesn't mean that we don't love them and desire them to come to repentance. But I want you to remember that God loves justice. And we have a role to play in that. Now, in some simplistic way, when I'm harmed, we think I have to hate or harm back or I have to pretend it didn't happen and just let it go. But we're not going to do that. We're going to pray for them. We're going to bless them. We're going to pray that God will bring them to repentance. And we're going to be kind to them. Why? Because we want to and must guard our own hearts. And that's the third point on the outline. We must guard our own hearts. I saw a video online not too long ago about an individual who stole a package off of a porch. You guys know what porch pirates are? Bad news, bad news. What would you do if you saw on your ring camera someone come up to your porch, grab a package that you bought, paid for, that you wanted, that you were waiting on, and then they begin to run away? And then they fell in the front yard and broke their leg. And you were home. Would laugh. Ha! You got what you deserved. Pardon? Only at first. Initial response. But you probably wouldn't go up to them and kick them while they're laying on the ground with a broken leg. Or pick up your package and hit them over the head with it. 
even though that might be what you want to do to start with. How dare you? You guys know what it's like to be stolen from or what it's like to be hurt or harmed. You know the invasive, the, 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 the violation that that is? All right, get this now. This is important. According to what we've already read and studied about the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the mercy of God, we're to go to that person and help them. They're laying there on the ground with a broken leg. And so we call 911. We try to ease their pain while we're waiting on the police that we've also called so that they can be arrested for stealing. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? The balance between justice and mercy. Because what happened, by the way, there's something about this eye for an eye thing. Some of you people, or I've been told, we shouldn't do this eye for an eye thing anymore. You understand the reason for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? It was so that vengeance or justice wouldn't escalate, 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 and you end up with a hat fills in because you took my eye, I'm going to take both of yours. You hurt me this bad, I'm going to hurt you worse so you'll never do it again. And all of a sudden, we've got the Montagues and the Capulets or the Hatfields and the McCoys or we've got whoever and whoever, people who are at animosity and enemies with one another. And it escalates and it gets out of control and it's no longer justice. Let me tell you, we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our hearts. The reason he's telling us to bless them when they persecute us and not to curse them. The reason that he's telling them to be kind to, for us to be kind to them, is so that we know that they're facing judgment. We desire that they become saved, that they become forgiven, that they become transformed, and our kindness becomes a testimony of the power of God to change hearts and change lives. It's a massive truth that we're dealing with here. That's why he says, don't let your heart be overcome by evil. You guys remember in Ephesians chapter 4, the end of that passage, where he talks about the danger of unforgiveness and animosity and holding grudges and bitterness? The last two verses of Ephesians chapter 4 have a whole list of things that I'm just going to read as we come to this point. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Here's the deal. When you are hurt and harmed, it's easy for you to become bitter, isn't it? You know what bitterness is? It's that root that gets down inside of you. You think about it. You can't let it go. It spreads, it, it, it spreads its roots in you, and then the fruitiveness is sourness and a sour taste. And you guys know people who are bitter, bitter at life. They have this expression that when they walk into a room, you wonder what they ate that disagreed with them or, 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 or who licked the red off their candy. I don't know, whatever phrase you want to use, but it's just bitterness. Our hearts can become bitter. The next word is wrath. Wrath is the Greek word thumos. It means heat. It's the same word we get thermos from. And it's blowing up. You know people who blow up? Just blow up bitter. And then we'll blow up our anger. That kind of boiling, slowly increasing uh, uh, resentment that makes itself known. In word. What about clamor? I love clamor. It's not a word we use often. You guys know what clamor is? Go to the preschool room on Sunday morning. Clamor is noise, loud, negativity. Now, granted, preschool room is loud, not negative. But negativity, it is, it is those who just always railing against this or railing against that or railing against this one who harmed me. What about slander? Slander, just tearing somebody down. 
Yeah, that guy hit my car. I bet he's done a lot of other stuff too. And we never stop. We continue to add to it. Malice, Greek word kakos or kakia here. Evil intent. People who are just mean. Can I tell you something? I don't want you to be a mean Christian. Aren't you tired of mean Christians? Don't they frustrate you sometimes? We need to be just and we need to be merciful. But folks, we need to be loving and kind. Be ye kind. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I'm going to close this sermon, but this is the most important part of it. We love our enemies by the power of God, not being overcome with evil, letting our hearts become bitter, wrathful, angry, but rather overcoming evil with good Our good is a testimony that God can use to bring people to repentance. And whether he does or not in each of those circumstances or situations, it's all good with us. Our job is to glorify God because here's what you need to remember. There was a time when you were his enemy. There was a time when you were going your own way, making your own decisions. You displaced him in your heart and your life. And your sins were against him. And your sins had separated between you and your God. And we're all guilty, everyone. The wages of sin is death. Justice. It's only fair. It's only right. You commit a crime, you pay the price, right? And yet God, being rich in mercy, made a way that we could be forgiven. That we could be, this is radical. Standing guilty, he makes a way to make us innocent. It's justification. He made his son, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I told you that God always judges sin. He judges sin in one of two ways. Simply put, either by applying it to Christ on the cross and giving us his righteousness when we come to him in repentance and faith as he brings us to life, or by by allowing us to continue in our sin until final judgment. And it's death and hell for an eternity. And God saved us. He didn't treat us like we deserved. Aren't you glad? He gave grace to us, and we get to. Display grace even to those who pursue us with the intent of doing harm for his glory. Isn't God good? We ought to be the most loving people in the world. Okay? Not the most gullible. The most loving. Who don't dismiss sin. We acknowledge it. And yet we work against it with good. To the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced God's grace, there is a bad day coming. And we want you to know what it's like to be forgiven, declared not guilty, innocent, just swallowed up in the love of God. We'd love to talk with you about that. If you're here and somebody's been pursuing you to do harm, now you know what to do. Bless them. Bless and do not curse. Be kind to them. Do good to them. 
Don't let your heart be overcome with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the application that we have here. Help us to recognize that what you command us to do, you enable us to do. Can we love our enemies? Really? Well, of course we can. You did. You loved us when we were in enmity with you. You gave your son to die on a cross that we might have a life, life everlasting. Father, make this reality in our hearts and lives. In your name I pray. Amen.